0: Pick up your Bible with me and turn to Mark chapter 13, Mark 13. Mark 13, and we're going to read the whole chapter. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or Look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability the Lord Jesus has to tell the future in advance. Help us as we listen to him. Help us heed the warning to stay awake. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's a nice easy question to kick us off this morning. When is Jesus coming back? Anyone? Soon could answer. It would be nice to know the date, wouldn't it? We could get our diaries out this morning, we could uh, write it in capital letters. I imagine we'd tear out the rest of the diary, what's the point in all the dates following? Not much use after that. Of course, some people have thought that they know the answer to that question. Um, On one end of that spectrum, every so often someone, and I'm afraid they're often American, look I'm sure that's a coincidence, (laughs) declares that they know for sure the date of Christ's return. It's the something for the something, something, something. And, and we all know how, how it goes. We get to the date, nothing happens, and they look a little bit silly, and they, they you know, change the date. There is a softer version of knowing the date. It's the version that um, holds a newspaper or the, uh, a news app or something in one hand, and, and then, say, the book of Revelation in the other hand, and it tries to join the dots, Uh, They might not claim a specific date, but they're confident that either it it can't possibly be in the immediate future, or it almost certainly will be. And they've read the news, they've read the signs, and they just know. Look, we, we know the appeal, don't we, of knowing the date. It's obvious. When something massive is coming, and nothing is as massive for the Christian or for the world as the return of the Lord Jesus. When something massive is coming, we want to be ready. We want to know when it's happening. And usually that does mean knowing the date. I want to know when the flight is, right, so I can pack my bags. I want to know when the surgery is so that I can mentally prepare myself. So, we understand it. There are people who think they know. There are other people who honestly don't really care. They might even be a Christian, but they barely think of Christ's return. They're too busy with the here and now to think about the there and then. And then still others don't think it'll happen at all. For them, Jesus is dead, and he isn't coming back, and all this talk of his return and the end of the world is silly. I wonder what you'd say to that person, that last category of person. If you were a Christian this morning, how would you try to persuade them that Jesus really is coming back and that they need to take it seriously? Would it have occurred to you to take them to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Because that's where Jesus takes his disciples here in Mark 13. So, scene one, the end of the temple has come, verses one, three to twenty-three, the end of the temple has come. The the temple has been all over Mark's gospel recently, hasn't it? This building, remember, was the center of Israelite life, and until now, until the coming of Christ, it's been the focus of God's plan for His people. But as Jesus has entered Jerusalem, it's become clear that the temple and the surrounding system has become uh, unfit for purpose. It wasn't, of course, the fault of the building. It was the establishment, the corrupt hypocritical leadership whose religion had become a cover for greed and corruption. They were, as Jesus had shown back in chapter 11 of Mark, like a fruitless fig tree, good for nothing but the fire. So Jesus' disciples by now know that the temple system wasn't working properly, but even so, his words here in chapter 13 must have come as an almighty shock. Picture the scene with me, as Jesus walks out through the temple courts One of his followers points up in wonder at the glory of the temple, its sheer scale. History tells us that the stones that made up the temple building were huge. My maths may be wrong, but if I've done the maths right, some were almost 70 foot long and about nine foot high. These were huge stones. And it's stunning beauty. When the midday sun shone on the gold plating on the temple, you needed sunglasses to look at it. And the marble was of such brilliant whiteness that from a distance you could think that you were approaching a snow-capped mountain. It was the pride of the people. It was a wonder of the world. And Jesus says, 13 verse 2, it's all coming down. It's all leaves and no fruit. Its end has come. And even Jesus' footsteps make the point. As he leaves the temple here he heads east across the Kidron brook to the Mount of Olives and careful readers of Ezekiel will remember a promise that the glory of the Lord would depart the temple and settle on an eastern mountain. Here is a fulfillment of that promise. The glory of the Lord incarnate is leaving the temple in judgment. And that judgment would be confirmed when the temple is raised to the ground. This was massive news and the disciples asked the question we would have asked if we were there. Have a look with me at verse 4, a very understandable question. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so, from verse 3 through to 23, Jesus describes in some detail The period leading up to and including the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It seems that verse 3 to 13 focus on the years leading up to it. The events Jesus mentions there in verse 3 to 13 are recorded in the book of Acts. It'll be a time, he says, of gospel impersonation, verse 6 and verse 22. People will come pretending to be the Messiah. Jesus says, don't listen to them, it's not me and gospel proclamation. Verse 10, the gospel will spread out all over the world, and as it does, it will be be met with intense gospel persecution. at Religious, verse 9, his proclaimers will be beaten in synagogues. It'll be political. Verse 9, they'll stand trial before governors and kings. It'll be personal. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. It's a picture here of massive turbulence, and all against the background of wars and earthquakes. But the real trial, says Jesus, will come in verse 14. What follows in those verses is a description of what history has come to call the Jewish revolt. So we need to do a little bit of history revision. In the late 60s AD, Emperor Nero sent a delegate to Judea to collect taxes and to pay for the restoration of Rome after the Great Fire. And unsurprisingly, some Judeans didn't like it, and so they revolted. But revolting against a superpower is a dangerous thing to do in Rome under Vespasian, and then his son Titus hit back very hard. And the history books describe in the spring of AD 70 a terrible siege, uh, elite Roman legions walling the people in to stop their escape. Uh, any captives were crucified in inventively cruel ways and in public view as a warning to the rest. And any who did manage to escape, so history tells us, took to swallowing their gold, their wealth, to smuggle it out. And so if they were caught, Roman legionaries would stab them in the stomach to check. And as the siege continued, the besieged slowly starved to death. Cholera and dysentery spread. Finally, the walls were breached, the fortifications destroyed. And the last stronghold, the temple, every single giant stone was thrown to the ground, just as Jesus had said. And so, as we might imagine, historians read Mark 13 with interest. How do we explain such an accurate set of predictions? How, how did he know that the temple would fall? How did he know that the people of Judea would need to flee to the mountains, in verse 14? That it would be so terrible, verse 15, that people shouldn't even try to grab a coat, just run for your life before the siege closes in. By the way, the, the abomination of desolation there in verse 14 this event that would warn the people to flee to the mountains, um, it's pretty hard to pin down. Uh, Some people think it describes Roman soldiers standing in the temple courts bearing idolatrous military flags. But of course, the soldiers only got into the temple after the siege, so as a cue to flee, it would, would have been too late. Other people think it describes a statue that Titus himself had commissioned to be built in the temple courts, but That statue was never made. Other people prefer the theory that Jewish zealots desecrated the temple during their resistance. We just don't know. But whatever it was, they'd know it when they saw it and they should run for their lives. How do we, though, explain Jesus' ability to predict the future? Is he a world-class guesser? He just struck lucky over and over and over and over again or as some people think, has there been a great conspiracy to, to only write history that agrees with Jesus' predictions? If Jesus is just a man, this is either fluke or fake. But Mark's been showing us, hasn't he, on every page of this book, that Jesus is not just a man. He's the Christ, the Son of God, the God who said back in Isaiah, I can tell you the future before it ever happens. If that's true, if Jesus is the Son of God, then when He warns us about the future, we should listen to Him. And not only about the end of the temple, but about the end of the world. Secondly, the end of the world is coming. Verses 24 to 31. In verse 24, Jesus moves beyond the end of the temple to another event to come, of which the temple's end is both proof and picture. Proof, because if Jesus was right about AD 70, we know he's going to be right about this event as well. And picture, because in the events of the temple's end, we see a glimpse of the end of the world. It will be cosmically turbulent. Look at verse 24 with me, verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. This is AD 70, if you like, gone global, a shaking of the entire created order. No one's missing this day. There will be a cosmic firework display, if you like, like nothing before. Imagine a a child on the South Bank in central London, it's New Year's Eve, they're excitingly waiting for New Year to come, to start, and at five to midnight and sick sick and tired of waiting, she turns to her mum and says, mum, is it New Year yet? And mum smiles and says, when it is, you'll know. Jesus is saying here, when the end of the world comes, we'll know. And not just by the shaking of the elements, but by the awesome sight of the Son of Man coming in power and glory. The world will end when the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, returns, and every eye will see Him. And it won't happen in secret. It won't be an event for some and not for others. Every nation will stop. Every religion will see the coming of the Son of Man. He'll shake the heavens and the earth. He'll call history to a halt. And he'll gather his people to himself. Now, how do we know any of that is going to happen? What's the sign? What's the proof? Well, see in verse 28 to 31 how Jesus makes the connection in, in those verses between the end of the temple and the end of the world. He uses a familiar picture, the fig tree. We've met the fig tree back in chapter 11. Summertime in Jerusalem runs from something like June to September, and in the May-June period, fig trees will start to produce, first the leaves and then the fruit. And the fig tree blossoming is the sign that summer is coming. And Jesus' point is this. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 would be the sign that at some point in the future, the end of the world is coming. When the disciples see these things, that is the events of AD 70, all these things which would happen in their lifetime, they'd know for certain that the next great event on God's calendar is the end of the world. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the return of the Son of Man in glory and power? Does it excite you? Are you waiting? Are you longing for him to come, to bring you to himself and to his new creation? Is that what you're longing for? Or does it terrify you? Do you fear his judgment and his justice? If you haven't bowed to the Lord Jesus as your King, you should be afraid. The Bible gives descriptions of the day of judgment to come, far more terrifying even than A.D. 70. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, for example, describes those without Christ calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? They won't be fleeing to the mountains. They'll be calling on the mountains to fall on them. Having a mountain crush a person would be better than to fall unforgiven into the hands of justice on the day of justice. The place to flee isn't the mountains, it's Christ. Remember how his ministry began? Repent, turn around. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from sin and run to Christ. This is so urgent. It isn't a game. It isn't a lifestyle choice. This isn't just about finding a community for the rest of our lives. This is about the end of the world. The day of judgment. The return of the Son of Man is coming. The sword of justice will fall on the unforgiven. Repent. Don't go back and grab your coat. Don't wait until you're older. You might not get there. Don't leave it till tomorrow. Flee the coming wrath and repent. Run to Christ. When a person does that, when they repent and they run to the Lord Jesus, when they trust in his sacrificial death on the cross, his return becomes a wonderful reason to rejoice. It's something to be excited about. Here's how other people have put it in something called the Heidelberg Catechism. Don't do many catechisms here, but here's one for you, Heidelberg Catechism. Question, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Comfort you. This is about the Christian's experience. Answer, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of heaven. See, for the Christian, Christ's return will be the beginning of an everlasting summer. For the Christian, the command is not to fear, but to stay awake. And that's the third and final thing to see here. So stay awake. Verses 32 to 37. Verse 32, uh, notice, uh, reminds us why we don't need to hold a newspaper and a Bible and try to read the signs and figure out the date. It's futile. Verse 32, have a look. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Anyone who thinks they know when Christ is coming back is wrong. And the sign of His coming in Mark 13 here has already happened by AD 70. The next date on God's calendar is the end of the world, but He's chosen not to tell us when it is. Now, why is that? He could have told us, couldn't He? There could have been a verse in the Bible that gives you the date. Why hasn't He told us? Because He wants us to live ready. Verse 33, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Imagine he had, imagine he told us that it's going to happen on the 4th of November, 2189. What would we do? We'd stop thinking about it, we'd stop waiting for it, we'd stop living as though Christ were coming at all, we'd be like a doorkeeper falling asleep on the job, that's the picture there in verse 34, isn't it? Jesus tells this very short parable about a man, a master, going away on a journey and stationing the doorkeeper to stay awake at the door, to watch for burglars and to be ready to welcome the master back home. It's a little picture here of the church. We're to be the the Lord Jesus' welcome party, to wait and to watch for his return. But what does that mean? What does it actually mean to stay awake? That's where the passage finishes, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, all Christians everywhere, stay awake. Well, surely it means something like this, to live in such a way that makes sense in light of Christ's return, to only do things and say things and think things that make sense given the coming of the Son of Man in glory and power. I'm going to borrow an illustration from... C.S. Lewis. Now, remember the last time you tried on clothes in a shop fitting room? You notice how you're, you're trying on the clothes in these fitting rooms, and they always deliberately keep the lights low, don't they? And Because they know that everything looks better in low lighting. Well, we all look better in low lighting. And we try it on, and we think, yeah, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I, I like this. I'll shell out the extortionate price they want for it, because I look fantastic um, in whatever it is. But of course, the problem is we don't live our lives in low lighting, that we buy the shirt or the dress or whatever it is, and then we go out and we wear it in bright daylight. And it might look quite different in bright daylight. That's what bright light does. Bright light exposes things that low light hides. And Lewis then takes that illustration and he comments this way. I'll read it for you. He says, We can perhaps train ourselves to ask more and more often How the thing which we are saying or doing, or failing to do, at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it, that light which is so different from the light of this world, to dress our souls not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next." to dress our souls not for the electric lights of this present world, but for the daylight of the next. When the irresistible daylight of Christ's return bursts in upon our world and on our lives, what will it find? What will he find? Will it show a life being lived for him? A life that only makes sense if there is another world to come? Or will he find us asleep? calling ourselves Christians, but living as though this world is all there is or ever will be. And Martin Luther once said that Christians should live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. Is that how we're living? Of course, we say for the future, don't we? We make plans for, I don't know, six months' time, but with every plan we make, every decision we take, we remember He could come today. Today. We might not leave this building before he comes. Much more dramatic than a fire drill. (laughs) This might be our last night on earth as we know it. How then will we live? Will we live today for treasures on earth or treasures in heaven with our Lord? Will we live for power and position here or glory and honor there with him? Will we be ashamed of him now, At bulk at the persecution and silence ourselves now, or, or will we be determined that he not be ashamed of us then? Will we live and speak and proclaim the gospel knowing that the Son of Man could come back today? Will we stay awake and live with eager longing for the end of the world?